This is VOA News, reporting via remote number to Ukraine. The first grain ship to leave Ukraine under a Black Sea wartime deal has passed inspection in Istanbul and is heading on to Lebanon. Authorities say a joint civilian inspection team spent three hours Wednesday checking the cargo and crew on the first ship. The wartime deal is aimed at easing food security around the globe by creating a safe corridor across the Black Sea. Ukraine says 17 other vessels at its ports are loaded with grain, awaiting permission to leave. There was no word yet on when they could depart. Elsewhere, Russian forces kept up their bombardment of a southern Ukrainian city, but in the east, Ukrainian forces said they repulsed over a dozen Russian assaults in Donetsk province. U.S. President Joe Biden has taken more executive action amid what he calls a health care crisis following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision ending the constitutional right to abortion. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani reports. The president signed an order aimed in part at making it easier for women seeking an abortion to travel between states to get one. The order came a day after Kansas voters defeated a state constitution amendment that would have allowed abortion restrictions, what the president calls a powerful signal from a red state. At this fall, the American people will vote to preserve and protect the right and refuse to let them be ripped away by politicians. He's again urging Congress to turn Roe v. Wade's protections into law. Sagar Magani, Washington. U.S. Senators delivered an overwhelming bipartisan vote ratifying NATO membership for Finland and Sweden. Lawmakers called Wednesday's 95 to 1 vote to expand the Western Defensive Bloc, a win for U.S. national security, and a day of reckoning for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is VOA News. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that admitting Sweden and Finland to NATO will send a strong signal to Vladimir Putin. This is important substantively and as a signal to Russia. They cannot intimidate America or Europe. President Biden has sought quick entry for the two unaligned northern European countries to the Western Military Alliance. Senators invited the ambassadors of Finland and Sweden to the chamber for Wednesday's debate and vote. As Lebanon commemorates the two-year anniversary of the explosion at the port of Beirut that killed at least 215 people and left much of the capital in ruins, people are blaming the same corruption and carelessness among the political elite for the recent partial collapse of the port's grain silos. For VOA, Dale Galvak, Gavlak reports from Amman. Partial collapse of the northern block of the port of Beirut's huge grain silos on Sunday painfully reminded Lebanese citizens of the massive 2020 explosion that killed many of their loved ones, destroyed homes and businesses, and forever changed their sense of security in the capital. Improperly stored ammonium nitrate at the port caused a blast on August 4, 2020, which has been recorded as one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. As with the port explosion, people in Beirut blamed the silo collapse on political and security officials for failing to enforce safety regulations. The government said it wanted to bring down the silos, but held off after victims' families and survivors protested, saying the sites may have evidence needed for the investigation. Dr. Nejat Saliba, a member of parliament and an environmental expert at the American University of Beirut, told VOA that she and others have urged the government since 2020 to clear the grain from the silo ruins. 
The government told the experts it had cleaned the area as much as it could, but that the silos might fall. Nothing is done. We're just watching the silos fall down. As we speak, there is a high chance that another two silos going to collapse. Two years on, no one has been held accountable for the port explosion, and victims' families are still fighting for justice. Dale Gaffleck for VOA News, Amman. Recapping our top story, the first grain ship to leave Ukraine under a Black Sea wartime deal has passed inspection in Istanbul and is having it heading on to Lebanon. Authorities said a joint civilian inspection team spent three hours Wednesday checking the cargo and crew on the first ship. The wartime deal is aimed at easing food security around the globe by creating a safe corridor across the Black Sea. Ukraine says 17 other vessels at its ports are loaded with grain awaiting permission to leave. For more on this story and all the stories we're covering, visit us at voanews.com. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today's Thursday, August 4th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, China lashes out with a sea and air military exercise close to Taiwan after U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. China demonstrated its outrage over the visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a burst of military activity in surrounding waters. First grain-laden cargo ship out of Ukraine inspected in Istanbul on the UN brokered deal. UN, Russian, Ukrainian and Turkish inspectors boarded the Sierra Leone flag Razoni, anchored outside Istanbul Wednesday. And Iraqi populist cleric Moqtada al-Sada tells his supporters to continue their sit-in occupation of the Baghdad parliament. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Beijing's anger at a visit by U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan coincides with its military exercises taking place within Taiwan's 12 nautical mile sea and air territory, according to Taiwanese Defense Ministry. It's an unprecedented move that a senior defense official describes as, I quote, effective blockade, unquote. Louisa Nax of Reuters reports. China demonstrated its outrage over the visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a burst of military activity in surrounding waters. As Pelosi wrapped up the highest level U.S. visit to the island in 25 years on Wednesday, a senior defense official described the live fire military exercises as an effective blockade. Taiwan's defense ministry says some of the air and naval exercises that are taking place within the 12 nautical mile area that Taiwan considers its territory an unprecedented move. China's foreign ministry says it doesn't see the drills causing freedom of navigation issues. Speaker Pelosi with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. Today the world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world remains ironclad. China considers Taiwan part of its territory and has never renounced using force to bring it under its control. The United States have warned China against using the visit as a pretext for military action against Taiwan. 
Wenti Sung is a political scientist with the Australian National University. He says the ongoing conflict in Ukraine caused concerns among some Taiwanese over their security. For what seems the, uh, the onset of the Ukraine-Russia war, if you look at opinion polls, there's roughly a 10 to 15 percent decrease in terms of share of Taiwanese who worry, who lose faith that the U.S. will not be coming to Taiwan's assistance militarily if a war breaks out between Taiwan and China. So and that's because they think that U.S. did not intervene directly militarily in Ukraine. And maybe it could be a situation of Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. Pelosi also met with pro-democracy activists in Taiwan, including one who fled Hong Kong in 2019. Beijing has said that Pelosi's visit seriously damages peace and stability in the region. That's Louisa Nax of Reuters. The United States and other countries are warning China not to be provocative following the one-day visit to Taiwan by members of the U.S. Congress, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman in Washington has details. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken joined his group of seven counterparts in issuing a statement Wednesday, saying there is no justification for China to use the U.S. House Speaker's visit as pretext for aggressive military activity in the Taiwan Strait. Amid military drills and threats by China to retaliate against the United States for the trip by the lawmakers to Taiwan, which Beijing considers a rogue province, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre avoided specifics in answering reporters' queries on how Washington might react. The United States will not seek and does not want a crisis here, but we are prepared to manage what Beijing chooses to do. The White House spokesperson added the United States knew that Beijing was going to react in this way. In a statement, Pelosi said the congressional delegation's visit to Taipei should be seen as a strong statement that America stands with Taiwan. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi left Taiwan on Wednesday after pledging solidarity and hailing its democracy. Her visit left a trail of anger as China claims the self-ruled island as its own. Pelosi is scheduled to continue her Asian tour with stops in South Korea and Japan. Tensions, however, continued to rise after her departure. For more on the mood in Taipei, I spoke with VOA Seoul Bureau Chief Bill Gallo. The general mood here is one of, well, here we go again, because they're used to this. They're very close to China. They've lived with this threat for decades. And there are occasions, not often, but there are occasions where this happens. People are concerned. There is a large percentage, maybe even a majority of people who support Pelosi's visit. But then there are another group of people who sort of, I think, wonder, did we sort of poke China and sort of cause them to have a firmer response here? And what does that mean for the future? What of the Taiwanese government? Any signs that they are building up or they are preparing for any eventuality, since China is almost uh, a shouting distance from its territorial waters. This is a very hard position for the Taiwanese government to be in, because China obviously overmatches Taiwan when it comes to military strength. It's really not much of a contest. And I think this is one of the reasons why you see Taiwanese leaders welcoming leaders like Nancy Pelosi from the United States and really welcoming this sort of U.S. statement of support, not only from the Biden administration, but also, you know, from even in the Trump administration, there were increased levels of support. This is sort of one of the cards they have to play, because the truth is they're badly outmanned and they need they really rely on U.S. support in a lot of ways. 
So there was a lot of question leading up to Pelosi's visit on whether or not the Taiwanese officials would sort of really kind of be proactive in showing that they wanted Pelosi to come and that they would do a lot of public events and things like that. Maybe there were some thoughts that they would not actually do that, that this would be a little bit more low-key of an event, not so many media events. Talking about reassurances, do we know what kind of assets and personnel the U.S. has around that area if it wants to and if it intends to support Taiwan? The U.S. always has, quite honestly, a number of aircraft carriers in the region. There is no real indication that they have increased the security presence around Taiwan in response to the Pelosi visit. However, it will be interesting to see over these next few days when China does sort of drastically increase these military drills, how the U.S. will respond. Because this is not only an issue for Taiwan, this is also an issue for a lot of other American partners and allies in the region. I mean, I came here from South Korea. South Korea and Japan are watching this very closely to see how the U.S. will respond. I don't think anyone wants there to be a tit-for-tat sort of escalation and shows of force that turn this into something where there would actually be clashes or something. But this is an effort, I think, in some ways to coerce and intimidate on behalf of China. And how will the U.S. respond to that? We really don't know yet, but so far it doesn't seem that things are escalating from the U.S. side. That's VOA so Bureau Chief Bill Gallo speaking with me from Taipei. As the war grinds on, the first cargo ship was inspected Wednesday in Istanbul on the Turkey-UN broker deal with Ukraine and Russia to export millions of tons of grain trapped in Ukrainian ports. The agreement aims to free up to 20 million tons of grain and analysts see it as key to easing skyrocketing food prices across the globe. For VOA, Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. UN, Russian, Ukrainian and Turkish inspectors boarded the Sierra Leone flag Razoni, anchored outside Istanbul, Wednesday. The Razoni is the first ship to export Ukrainian grain under last month's Turkish-UN brokered deal between Kiev and Moscow. The deal requires all ships carrying Ukrainian grain be searched both going to and leaving Ukraine. After Wednesday's inspection, the Razoni continued on its voyage to Lebanon to deliver 27,000 tonnes of corn. The operation is run from a joint coordination centre in Istanbul. The centre is staffed by Turkish, Russian, Ukrainian defence officials, along with UN representatives. Speaking to reporters at the centre Tuesday, Turkish Admiral Özcan Altunbulak said, with global hunger in the balance, they are aware of their responsibilities. He said the Turkish delegation would do its duty with the awareness that the world is watching. He said nations have undertaken an historic and humanitarian mission and Turkey will continue to do its part. UN officials say they aim to export up to 5 million tonnes of grain a month from Ukraine. With world markets relying heavily on Ukrainian grain, the success of the agreement is key to easing soaring food prices. Political columnist Ilhan Uzgel of the Duvar news portal says the initial success of the grain agreement is a victory for Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, given his role in brokering the deal. Erdogan you know, grabbed a role, diplomatic, showing to the West that Turkey can be a useful actor in, in this region and mitigating the adverse effects of the food crisis globally. 
Erdogan has faced criticism from some of his Western allies for maintaining close ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Erdogan is due to meet Putin Friday in the Russian Black Sea resort of Sochi, the second face-to-face encounter in a month. Erdogan says such close ties were essential in helping to broker the grain deal. Mesut Charshan, a Turkish presidential advisor who teaches at Istanbul's Yeditepe University, says if the grain agreement succeeds, it could offer hope for a wider peace. He says that with Russia invading 25% of Ukraine's territory, one could not achieve a ceasefire in these conditions. Charshan says there must be a rational reconciliation and adds that this humanitarian food corridor can mark important progress towards softening Russia's stance and getting back to the table again. Analysts warn peace talks are unlikely anytime soon. Still, Ankara says its success in brokering a grain deal underlines how well-placed it remains to facilitate an end to the conflict if or when that opportunity arises. Dorian Jones for VOA News, Istanbul. The U.S.-directed killing of al-Qaeda's leader in Afghanistan was a blow to the terror group's leadership, but will it affect its offshoot in the Middle East, Africa and Asia? The White House says it's not taking its eyes off any terror threats that arise, and terrorism researchers say the U.S. needs to be vigilant and patient. VOA's Anita Powell reports from the White House. We have eliminated the emir of al-Qaeda. But the White House also says cutting off the head of the beast may not neutralize the threat. John Kirby is head of strategic communications for the National Security Council. They're in North Africa. They're in the Sahel. They're throughout the Middle East. They're in Yemen. I get that we're focused on Afghanistan right now, but we're not taking our eye off the rest of the world either. Since Osama bin Laden formed the group in 1988, al-Qaeda has sprouted numerous offshoots, united over the decades by intolerance, hatred of the U.S. and Israel, and a strict interpretation of Islam. Michael Kugelman is deputy director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. He spoke to VOA via Zoom. Al-Qaeda may not be actively, operationally planning an attack on U.S. soil, but ideologically, it remains opposed to the U.S. So, you know, that very fact is something that we shouldn't overlook. Especially in Africa, where affiliates have flourished. Martin Ewey is a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies based in Pretoria, South Africa. He spoke to VOA via Zoom. My advice to Biden and to the American government is that, yes, okay, we can kill the leadership, but I think it's a very tiny aspect of the fight against terrorism. Focus should actually be on addressing the factors, the political and economic factors that actually shield terrorism or which actually give oxygen to terrorism around the world. But also Wahiri's death will affect these groups. Although he was not a charismatic leader like bin Laden, he was a disciplined one. Colin Clark is director of policy and research at the Sufan Group. He spoke to VOA via Zoom. Zawahiri was effective in kind of keeping this broader network of affiliates, franchise groups, and and branches together from the Sahel to the Horn of Africa and, and further afield. That's probably what he should get the most credit for, is maintaining that alliance and doing it through the turbulent period of the Arab Spring and the rise of the Islamic State. So what now? On that, the president was clear. My administration will continue to vigilantly monitor and address threats from al-Qaeda, no matter where they emanate from. Analysts also urged patience. Al-Qaeda attacked the World Trade Center the first time in 1993, killing six people. At the time, they were a relatively obscure group, until September 11, 2001. Anita Powell, VOA News, the White House. 
In other news, Iraqi populist cleric Muqtada al-Assad on Wednesday told his supporters to continue their sit-in occupation of the Baghdad parliament until his demands, which include early elections and unspecified constitutional changes, are met. The remarks delivered by the Shiite leader in a televised address are likely to prolong a political deadlock that has kept Iraq without an elected government for nearly 10 months. Thousands of Sadr supporters stormed Baghdad's fortified Green Zone, which houses government buildings and foreign missions last weekend, and took over the empty parliament building, staging a sit-in that is still ongoing. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinadua for in Washington. The World Health Organization warns the lack of humanitarian aid is driving millions of hungry people in the Horn of Africa to engage in desperate measures to survive. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. A recent UN analysis of the food situation in the region found 37 to 50 million people as being in what is classified as IPC Phase 3. The World Health Organization explains that level of food insecurity forces people to sell their possessions to feed themselves and their families. At that stage of crisis, it says malnutrition is rife and special nutritional treatment is needed. Sophie Mays is the WHO Incident Manager for Drought and Food Insecurity in the Greater Horn of Africa. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, she says the WHO and other aid agencies are unable to provide the help needed to stave off hunger and ill health because of a severe funding shortage. Normally what you do in this kind of situation is you do blanket um supplementary feeding so that people slide don't slide further into malnutrition and this is not uh, being well funded at the moment due to the competing crises that are going along she notes the world food program ran out of money and had to cut rations for many beneficiaries to be able to support those most in need she says health risks have been compounded by four years of consecutive drought. She says the hoped-for reprieve is unlikely to come, as forecasts indicate the upcoming rainy season is expected to fail. She says growing numbers of people are engaging in risky behavior just to get something to eat and support their families. People are desperate to get uh, to get money, so there is uh, survival sex going on. There is more violence, uh, fighting for the meager resources. There's also uh, gender-based violence going up with women having to go further to find food and water. So um, as they are further away from where they live, they are more prone to be, to be attacked. The WHO says it needs nearly $124 million to spend through the end of the year to protect lives in the fragile region. It says the money will provide millions of people with the aid they need to fight disease outbreaks, provide life-saving nutritional feeding for severely malnourished children, and ensure they have access to health services. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. New Zealand's climate change minister James Shaw says severe weather events that have previously seemed unthinkable are now, quote, happening at a pace and intensity we have never experienced before, unquote. Phil Mercer reports. New Zealand's climate change minister James Shaw said severe weather events that had previously seemed unthinkable were now happening at a pace and intensity we've never experienced before. 
He announced Wednesday the first long-term strategy to help New Zealand become more resilient and adaptable to a shifting climate. One possibility is that some homes near the coast could eventually be abandoned because of rising sea levels. A guiding principle of the 200-page report was to prepare for adverse events before they occur rather than after. Lifting properties above flood-prone land or boosting flood defences are among dozens of potential options. Property developments in high-risk areas wouldn't be permitted. Shaw told reporters near Wellington that New Zealand had to prepare for a warmer future. Over the course of the last year or so, there have been New Zealanders all over the country who have experienced firsthand the increasing impact of climate change in their communities. So people are now experiencing, with increasing severity and increasing frequency, the floods, the droughts and the storms that are associated with a changing climate. Shaw said communities across the South Pacific country of about 5 million people had in the past year or so been hit by serious floods, droughts and storms. The year 2021 was New Zealand's warmest on record. The plan also noted that rising temperatures would have a significant impact on native species and the environment. The National Climate Strategy is the first in a series of adaptation plans that will be prepared every six years. The cost of adapting to global warming will be shared between property owners, New Zealand's central and local governments, insurance companies and banks. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. We know that George Floyd's murder in May 2020 by a white Minneapolis police officer sparked a global movement. But what do we know about the life of George Floyd? Washington Post reporters Robert Samuels and Tolu Olorunipa set out to answer this question in a new book. His name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and television programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua from Washington. Have a wonderful day.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States is committed to responsibly managing its relationship with the People's Republic of China by leading with diplomacy and keeping open channels of communication. To further this goal, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with his counterpart, PRC State Councilor Wang Yi, for five hours on the sidelines of the recent G20 conference in Bali. After the meeting, Secretary Blinken told reporters the two talked about regional and global issues in which both countries had stakes, including the Kremlin's unprovoked war against Ukraine and North Korea's nuclear program. They also discussed areas where more cooperation between the PRC and the United States should be possible. The climate crisis, food security, global health and counter-narcotics. The two leaders discussed areas of disagreement as well, said Secretary Blinken, including Beijing's increasingly provocative rhetoric and activity toward Taiwan, the PRC's repression of freedom in Hong Kong, forced labor, the treatment of ethnic and religious minorities in Tibet, and genocide in Xinjiang. Secretary Blinken also said he shared with State Councillor Wang the United States' concern over the PRC's alignment with Russia, despite the Kremlin's brutal war of choice against Ukraine. What you hear from Beijing is that it claims to be neutral, he declared. It's pretty hard to be neutral when it comes to this aggression. There is a clear aggressor. There is a clear victim. There is a clear challenge not only to the lives and livelihoods of people in Ukraine, but there is a challenge to the international order that China and the United States as permanent members of the Security Council are supposed to uphold. Secretary Blinken noted that in any case, the PRC's actions belie its claim to neutrality. Beijing and Moscow announced their no-limits partnership as Russia was amassing troops on Ukraine's border. In June, President Xi reaffirmed that he stands by that decision. In addition, Beijing continues to support Russia at the United Nations and other international organizations, and Beijing echoes and amplifies Russian propaganda around the world. Secretary Blinken categorized the meeting with State Councillor Wang as useful and constructive. He warned, however, this really is the moment where all have to stand up, as we heard country after country do in the G20, to condemn the Russian aggression. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.